a lot of y'all have been waiting for for years. I've had people come up and say, Pastor, you need to preach on the end times. Yep, it's that time. So, but here, here's the thing. It's going to be a little different today. This, we're going to start a sermon series today called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Through this sermon series, here's what we're going to learn. That the Antichrist is alive and well on planet Earth today, and we can know who he is without question. The location of modern-day Babylon. The names of the ten nations that will rise to subdue the three kings. And the, the names of the three kings. We're going to learn that Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, and Jeff Bezos are working together on the final stages of the implementation of the Mark of the Beast. For those of you who have been paying attention over the last month leading up to this, you know that none of that is true. And if you, if you believe that, we're also going to learn that the arrest of Donald Trump marks the beginning of the seven-year period of tribulation. <laughs> There's a lot of hype when it comes to end time study. And not a lot of hope. I've come today to bring hope. My name is Chad Hayes and I'm your hope dealer today. We're gonna give hope. We're gonna give hope as we study the book of Revelation. We're, we're gonna focus specifically on what this thing is really about. It's a revelation of Jesus and his kingdom coming and being established on planet Earth. That's the real purpose of this book. This book is not so preachers have good material to scare people into salvation. That's not what this book for. There, and there are some very scary things in this book. Uh, we're talking about a third of the oceans, thirds of the forests, etc., being destroyed. Talking about giant earth, uh, insects coming out of the earth and attacking and stinging men. And I mean, there are some terrifying things in this book, but it's not written to terrify the saints of God. Uh, it's, it's, it's talking about how the enemies of God are going to be defeated and his kingdom is going to be set up and, the, and, and we saints are going to be a part of his kingdom. Amen? So it's, it's a, an exciting thing. It's not something to be afraid of. Let's look at um, Revelation chapter 1. And we're, we're going to reveal Christ out of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is probably, if not the most, one of the most Christocentric books in the Bible. In other words, it's centered around Jesus. There's so much revelation about Jesus and who he is in this book. And we get so busy looking for the nuclear bombs and figuring out who the Antichrist is and what the mark of the beast is and how all that's going to play out that we miss the real purpose of the book, which is to really to give us hope of the coming kingdom of God and to point us to Jesus. So Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you're hoping that I'll tell you if Jesus is coming mid-trib or pre-trib or post-trib to get us, we're not going to learn that today. Now, we will next month when we, we're going to do an in-depth study on Wednesday nights. We're going to do an in-depth study on the end times, and we're going to look at some of that stuff. And we're going to try to eliminate a lot of the assumptions. We're going to give a lot of the options that are out there and a lot of things that people believe and why they believe that and what might be possible but what we're really going to focus on is what we can absolutely be certain of because it's very clear in the scripture. And that's what we're going to focus on. But right now we're just going to focus on the revelation of Jesus. The revelation of Jesus Christ, 
Revelation 1 and 1 says, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly come to place. And that the word there um, has, has a, the meaning of that these things are imminent. Right? We believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That's, that's near. This, this book was written 2,000 years ago. If it, if it was soon then, how much sooner is it today? I, I believe, in, is he coming this year? I don't know. I mean, there have been lots of books written. I remember when I was a kid, 88 reasons why Jesus will come back in 1988. We're, we're not into predictions. We're not into that. We're into under, understanding, understanding times and seasons and the signs of the, of the age. We can see that. We can know that the day of the Lord is near. And... Um, we're not into making predictions. The things which must shortly take place, he says. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Right there, we see there is a promised blessing. Why are we afraid to read the book? Why are we intimidated by this? Why are we scared? Why do we have this attitude that says it's cryptic and confusing, apocalyptic writing, and I, it's veiled, and I can't comprehend it, I can't understand it? When the introduction to the book says there's a blessing on everybody who reads this or hears this, and you know, we're, we're fortunate to be able to read it because back in the time that it was, this, this um, document was written by John on, on uh, Pat Missile, uh, there wasn't a printing press. There was either an original copy or somebody had handwritten a copy of John's original writings. And so more, more than likely, in a church setting, in an assembly, it would have been read to the congregation. But there, there's a promise, a blessing, to everybody who reads this, hears this, and the last thing, keeps it. Keeps the things that are written in this prophecy. Blessed are those who keep the things that are unveiled here. See, I don't think God is trying to hide things. This is actually an unveiling. And I think a lot of our confusions is because we really have tried to magnify the symbolism that's in the book and apply application and meaning to those symbols. I, there, there's, we, we do things like this. I heard teaching that you know, the leopard that's mentioned would be Germany. I've heard that the bear mentioned would be Russia, um, the lion, Great Britain, the eagle, the United States. But we, we, we have to at least admit that that would be at best an assumption because it's, it's, it's not told us in the scriptures that that's what those things mean. See, when we're looking for answers about things in the Bible, you know where the best place to find the answer is? Not on Google, not even in your commentaries. Commentaries can be good, but I, I like what somebody said that, that the Bible shines a lot of light on commentaries. 
you, you got it right. The best place to find an answer about the Bible was in the Bible. And you know that the major symbols in the book of Revelation are actually defined. The major symbols of the book of Revelation, we're told in the book what the symbols mean. Right? And we're going to see that as we, and maybe not on Sundays, but on Wednesdays maybe, we're going to see that, that the symbols, they're identified for us. And so we don't have to read this trying to um, assume things about it or read our cultural context into the book and try to make it fit. So I, I believe that the nations that are there are actually the nations of Bible times that surround Israel. Those are going to be the major players. We're, will there be people... Uh, maybe from the United States or China or different nations at, at, at these battles, at these wars, these conflicts and the things that are happening, will they be involved? Absolutely. But re really, Bible prophecy is, is geared around the, the nations that surround Israel. So I'm just trying to say we, we have read a lot of things into this book that really are confusing, that blur our understanding and interpretation of what this is really uh, intended to communicate to us. And if we just read the book... As it is, there comes a lot of clarity and a lot of understanding. And don't try to force meaning. Don't try to say, you know, are these things nuclear bombs? Is this Antichrist? Is, the, is he European? Is he from the Roman Empire? Is he a Muslim? We try to force all of these things into it. And we miss the real purpose and the real focus of what this book in the Bible is intended to bring forth. At the very center of this book is much revelation about Jesus Christ. It's the unfolding of his kingdom. We, and, and we'll look at this probably more on Wednesday night than, than on Sunday mornings, but the, the things that were started in Genesis, in human history, in the book of Revelation, they find their culmination. The Bible is many books written by many men, but really there's truly one author, and it's the Holy Spirit, and he is writing a story. When you put the Bible together, you get a story, and I, I love to look at it this way. It is redemption's story. It's God's plan. It's God's story of how man is lost, and he redeems them, how the earth comes under curse, and the Lord comes back and sets his kingdom up. And brings the blessing of his kingdom. As you read through the book of Revelation, that's what's happening. The usurper is being, and, and, and all of those that are in rebellion against God are being removed. Ultimately, at the end, the enemy will be judged and locked away for eternity. All of the enemies of God, all the nations, um, will be brought under the authority of Jesus Christ. The saints of God, we will, and God, and we're going to see this today, uh, just in a little bit, that, that we, we are going to rule and reign with him as a kingdom of priests. That we're going to have dominion. We, we are called to rule with God as his children. We're going to rule with Jesus in the age that is to come. You know, and, and this blows away a lot of our kind of Greekly, or however you want to term that, influence idea of what heaven looks like. Like there's some little angels up there strumming on a harp. And that's what, our, you know, we're going to, you know, the, the, the clouds and, you know, the little, what do you call those, diapers or togas or whatever, the diapers that the, the angels are always wearing in the cartoons. 
That's not what heaven's going to look like. And Satan isn't some guy running around with a red pitchfork and, right? See, we get all of this imagery from culture and what surrounds us, and we miss the real point of the message that God is communicating to us. This book is about Jesus coming and establishing his kingdom on planet Earth. The last two chapters of this are beautiful. Right? It's the, that time where there's no more dying. There's a giant tree, and the nations will come and eat the fruit of it, and it's the healing of the nations, and that tree is so big that it's on both sides of the river. This is incredible picture. This book ends in glory. It ends in peace. It, it ends in what we're hoping for. And we allow religious concepts to take the joy and the blessed hope of reading this book from us. We need to focus on Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus is at the center of this. The design and purpose of all scripture is the testimony or the revelation of Jesus Christ. All scripture, including the book of Revelation. Right? The design purpose of all scripture is the testimony or the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says this. He says, you search the scriptures. He's speaking to the religious orders of his day, uh, the religious leaders of his day. And he said, you guys search the scriptures. This is in John chapter 5, verse 39. And in them you think you have uh, uh, eternal life. But he says, you're missing the point because they testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you might have eternal life. You know, we can study the Bible and not come to eternal life. Theologians in seminaries and universities and Bible colleges have studied the Word of God and never come to the point of having eternal life. You can study the Bible and not be saved. You can read Scripture and quote Scripture and not have a relationship with the living God. If we're going to have the life that we see in the scripture and the promise and every blessing and every hope, we have to, our reading of scripture has to bring us to Jesus Christ. One of my mentors back in Bible college, Dr. Van Gill, he, he said it this way. He said, if you do a Bible study and you don't learn something about Jesus, you haven't really studied the Bible. That's true. Our study of this, the Word of God, as we look into the Scripture, it should reveal something to us of Jesus that changes us and transforms us. That's what the, the writer in, in Corinthians says. He says, as we look into the mirror, which is the Word of God, we are changed into the image of the Lord day by day by the power of the Spirit of God. That's what our Bible study should look like. It should bring us to Christ and it should transform our lives. Your Bible study will not lead you to life unless it leads you to Jesus. I mean, we, we can get all kinds of principles and concepts down and live those out, but it could be nothing more than just the works of our flesh. Absent of the life of God, absent of the power of God's spirit, because we're doing it in ourselves and not receiving it from the Lord. There's a huge difference. The Bible, this, this book here, is a, is a Christocentric book. Jesus is at the center of this book. You can read every single book in the Bible, and you can find Jesus. 
In Genesis, he is the creator and the redeemer. He's the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is the high priest. In Numbers, he's the water in the desert. In Deuteronomy, he became the curse for us. In Joshua, he is the commander of the, the army of the Lord. In Judges, he delivers us from injustice. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel, he is all in one. He is the prophet, priest, and king. In 2 Samuel, he is the king of grace and love. In 1 Kings, he's a ruler uh, greater than Solomon. In, in 2 Kings, the powerful prophet. In 1 Chronicles, the son of David that is coming to rule. In 2 Chronicles, he's the king who reigns eternally. In Ezra, he's the priest proclaiming freedom. In Nehemiah, he is the one who restores what is broken down. In Esther, he is the protector of his people. In Job, he is the mediator between God and man. In Psalms, he's our, our, our song in the morning and in the night. In Proverbs, he's our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's our meaning for life. In Song of Solomon, he is the author of faithful love. In Isaiah, he is the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, the weeping Messiah. In Lamentations, he assumes uh, God's wrath for us. In Ezekiel, he is the son of man. And Daniel, he is the stranger in the fire with us. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband, even when we run away. In Joel, he is sending his spirit to his people. In Amos, he delivers justice to the oppressed. In Obadiah, he is the judge of, of those who do evil. In Jonah, the great missionary. In Micah, he casts our sin into the sea of his forgetfulness. In Nahum, he proclaims the, the future, future world peace uh, we, we cannot even imagine. In Habakkuk. He crushes injustice in Zephaniah, the warrior who saves. In Haggai, he restores our worship. In Zechariah, he prophesies the Messiah pierced for us, who is Jesus. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings. In Matthew, he is the Messiah who is king. In Mark, he is the Messiah who is servant. In Luke, he is the Messiah who is the deliverer. In John, he is the Messiah who is God in the flesh. In Acts, he is the spirit who dwells in his people. In Romans, he is the righteousness of God. In 1 Corinthians, he is the power of, and love of God. In 2 Corinthians, he is the down payment of what's to come. In Galatians, he is our very life. In Ephesians, the unity of the church. In Philippians, the joy of our life. In Colossians, he is the one who holds supreme position in all things. In 1 Thessalonians, he is our comfort in the last days. In 2 Thessalonians, he's our returning king. In 1 Timothy, he's the savior who worships sinners. And in 2 Timothy, he's the leader of the leaders. Titus, he's the foundation of truth. In Philemon, he's our mediator. In Hebrews, our high priest. In James, he's the, uh, he's the one who matures our faith. In 1 Peter, our hope in times of suffering. 2 Peter, the one who, who guards us from false teaching. 1 John, he's the source of fellowship. 2 John, he's the God in the flesh. 3 John, the source of all truth. In Jude, he protects us from stumbling. And in Revelation, he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and the one who is coming again and who will make all things new. And much more to be said. Amen. If you guys like that, I need to download more stuff off the internet. I got that online. <laughs> Next week. <laughs> you have to go back and replay that one. I need a break. So the point is, Jesus is at the center of every book in the Bible. 
That's why the guy's riding along in his, his chariot. The eunuch and Philip runs up beside him and said, what are you reading? And he begins to read to him out of Isaiah. And the Bible says there at that scripture, it was Isaiah 53, he begins to preach Jesus to him. We as believers ought to be able to open every book of this Bible and declare Jesus. When you do your Bible study, when you get in there, look for Jesus Christ. One of the repeating phrases in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is, to him that has the ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. When the Spirit speaks, what does the Spirit say? I'm going to give you a big house, a blessed life, right? That's, that's what people ascribe to him. All kinds of prophecy, all kinds of utterances that have nothing to do with Jesus. When the Spirit speaks, what does he say? Jesus tells us in John 16, in verse 13, he says, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he's going to guide you into all truth. How many believe when the Spirit speaks? He's speaking truth, but he gets deeper. He will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak. So he's not speaking of his own volition. What he's hearing, he's speaking. He's going to tell you the things that are come. He will speak of the future, right? The Holy Spirit will declare things about the Spirit. But ultimately, this is it in verse 14. He will glorify me, Jesus says. For he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. When the Holy Spirit speaks, he's going to say something about Jesus. To him that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Following that statement, there's a message to the church, right? Seven churches. Now, these are actual churches. Some of them, some, some folks would try to apply, and maybe they're right, but they would try to apply those to different ages of the church. But these are actually churches, and these were messages that God, through the Holy Spirit, John writing, sends to those churches. Seven very distinct, uh, distinct message to each and every church. But if you look at every one of those messages, there's a message about Jesus. Right? He's the one who has the seven lamps in his hand. He's the one who has the two-edged sword that proceeds out of his mouth. Seven beautiful revelations of Jesus Christ. The Spirit speaking to the church. Now, he's dealing with some issues. We learned this back in our, in our Philippians Bible study. Right? There were problems in the book of Philippians, and Paul gave a presentation of Jesus in the book of Philippians because the way they were going to overcome the problems of disunity and striving was through Jesus, who humbled himself and became a servant. Right, So every time God wants to get a message to us about whatever he wants to deal, with, with, with us, deal in us about, he's going to tell us something about Jesus. Because the way that we're going to be transformed, the way that we're going to overcome is through Jesus. We see this pattern in all seven of those churches. I've got something against you. There's a problem that needs to be dealt with here. 
Here's the revelation of Jesus, because that's the way you're going to overcome that problem. Now, to him that overcomes this problem, here's the promise. In the message from the Holy Spirit to those seven churches, there's a problem, there's a presentation of Jesus, and then there's a promise to everybody who overcomes the problem. That's the pattern, and that's a pattern that, that you can find through all the epistles and, and, and throughout Scripture. There's problems that God's dealing with us about the way that we overcome those problems is through Christ, and when we overcome, there is a promise. It's a pattern of Scripture. God wants to communicate through the book of Revelation a message to his church about Jesus. There are things that are to come. I think more than likely we're going to be alive when a lot of what's unfolding, some, and there are different views. Some people think some of this has already happened, preterism and um, postmillennialism. believes a lot of this happened actually in the first century. Amillennial believes it's, it's just happening over a, a time period. Uh, premillennial millennial views believes that these things are still yet to come. I, and I think most of us in this church, believe that what's, what's written in the book of Revelation are things to come. They're still to unfold. There's instruction there for us, for our understanding, so that when we face the challenges of the days ahead, we know how to lean into Jesus and come out as overcomers. I mean, doesn't it say they will overcome? This is a book for the saints of God of overcoming. And the way we overcome, we have an enemy, and the way we overcome him, through Jesus. Are y'all with me? All right, so that's introduction. All right, should we go home now? Y'all want more? Let's, let's dive into this. So I want to look at a revelation about Jesus. The first revelation about Jesus that we see in, in this book. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. He says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you, peace from him who is, and this is beginning to re reveal God to us right here, the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come. There's God the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, there's the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus, there's the Son. And look what it says about the Son, the, the faithful witness. The, this is revelation of Jesus right here. The firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to our God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. This is a, this is, um, um, a statement that's made in, in a couple of the Old Testament prophets declaring the coming of the Lord. And by the way, today is Palm Sunday when Jesus came and presented himself to Israel and was rejected. Guess what? He's coming back again. We're talking about his coming right now. He's coming back with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so... Amen. And in red letters, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning, the end, says the Lord, who is 
and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Talks, starts out talking about him being the faithful witness. The writer, writer of Hebrews says that in times past, in different ways, God spoke to us through the prophets. But now, he has spoken to us by his son, through his son. He is the faithful witness. He's the one who gives the testimony of God. The firstborn from the dead has to do with resurrection. We're going to dive into that next Sunday. Preeminence. The firstborn. It's a Jewish term dealing with preeminence. Preeminence and resurrection. We're going to get deeper into that next week. He is the preeminent one, the firstborn of God, the firstborn of the, res of the dead. Thank God for the resurrection. The ruler over the kings of the earth is self-explanatory. And we, we will see this unfolding as we go through this study. I, I want to focus in on this phrase right here. And this is in verse 5. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And here's the result of that. He made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. And really, it's the one thing we miss the most when we study the book of Revelation. Judgment of God is coming on the nations of the earth, all of the rebellious, all of the wicked. And it's going to be the priesthood. Psalmist said that our praise, our prayer, our worship executes vengeance upon the wicked. We're not bystanders watching. We're participators in the victory of God, triumphing over all of God's enemies. He's made us a kingdom of priests. It's a beautiful picture that unfolds as you study the book of Revelation. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And that's the way this book ends. The dominion of God. God's kingdom on planet earth. Jesus on the throne from Jerusalem ruling the nations of this planet. That's how the book ends. I want to wrap up today. I want to look at that phrase that I tried to highlight there in the fifth verse. To him who loved us and washed us in his own blood. Washed us from our sins in his own blood. It's interesting because all of these things are very descriptive of the authority of Christ, of his power, of purpose, and right there in the midst of that, he gets to this place where he starts to talk about the love of God. And the fact that Jesus washed us in his own blood. And the result of that is now we're a kingdom of priests. 
very purposeful. The, the language is very intentional. And it starts with the blood of God, the blood of the Lamb, shed for us. We don't like to talk about it. There's actually churches that forbid the use of that word in their preaching and in their songwriting because it's, it's gory and offensive. If we don't have the blood in our gospel, we have nothing. We're, we, we are saved. We need to understand we're going to see this. We are saved by the blood of the Lamb, by, by law, by God's law, by the, the law that God gave his people according to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without the blood of Jesus, we have no hope. Without the blood of Jesus, we become a works-oriented folk. We walk around in our filthy rags without the blood of Jesus. Without the blood of Jesus cleansing us, we are filthy and wretched. There's no cleansing without the blood. Humanity is sinful. Turn on the news. Doesn't matter which news channel. Doesn't matter what cable channel. You, you can barely watch TV anymore. It's so offensive. I mean, the, the world is in shambles. The world, if, if, if we can't see that the, that, that the world is lost in sin and that we are all wretched sinners, something is wrong with our perception. We are wretches, and we're dependent upon the blood of Jesus Christ. Without the blood, we have no hope. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. Without it, we don't. We have the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Grace. I talked about that term last week. Remember I talked about the guy who had a wealthy, he, he was embellished in goods, $5,000 Armani, expensive. By the way, I want to say hi to my mother-in-law over in the UK. Hope you're doing well. I'm wearing my mother-in-law's tie and pin that she sent me. Some of y'all are asking why I'm all suited up today. Got a little drip, right? We talked about drip last week. How God drips in mercy. He is rich in mercy. That, that's the terminology there, that it's dripping off. Of, he's like this man embellished, like money's falling out of his pockets. It's, that's his, the picture of his love for us. He's rich in love. The, the, the blood was shed because of the riches of his grace. Our God, we need to see this. We need to understand this. Our God is rich in mercy and grace. And I think this is the reason that most Christians have a hard time reading the book of Revelation. They don't understand the grace of God. They don't understand how much God loves them. And so when they approach it, all they, have, all they know is fear. We, we, some of us grew up thinking that, I mean, if we did one little thing wrong, we had lost our salvation. Right? Like one wrong word. You looked at somebody the wrong way and like you had to go down and get on the floor and repent and waller and, and hope that you felt forgiveness. Some of us were raised that way. I, I've heard stories from some of y'all that some of y'all had experiences where, where they would ask you, are you ready for the rapture? And you'd raise your hand and they'd say, no, you're not. Put your hand down. So that's what ugly religion and a warped view of who God is does for us. God in his nature is good. He's rich in mercy. He himself came 
and died for us. Let's move to love. We're, we're heading in that, in, in, in that direction. And, and before we do, let me, let me say this. The blood of Jesus is essential. Again, in Revelation, there, there's a battle. There's a conflict. It will be between the, 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 the church, God's people, and the enemies of God, and the way that we're going to overcome how? The blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb is essential. It's key in this book. The blood of lamb, the Lamb that purchased us. The blood of the Lamb that, what, what did Ephesians say? Has redeemed us and forgiven us of our sins. If we're under the blood, it's behind us. Right? The, the, the death of Jesus on the cross saved us of our sins, and we'll look at this a little bit more next week. The, the resurrection and life of Christ saves us from our own ruin. So without Calvary, without the death, the burial and resurrection, which is the heart and core of the gospel, without the blood of Jesus, we have no hope. We have no forgiveness of sin. We have no relationship with God, and we are eternally lost. We need to understand that. Why, why in the world would we be ashamed of the blood of Jesus? Why in the world would we, we forbid our preachers or our songwriters to sing songs about the blood of the Lamb? It is the most precious and glorious thing. In the blood of Christ is our hope, and without it we are hopeless, period, full stop. Let's move on to the love of God. For God, in, in, in uh, John three sixteen, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That, that, should, that one verse right there, and probably one of the most famous verses of all times. I remember when I was a kid, I used to see John three sixteen behind the goalposts. Right? This one verse right here should sum it up. I think it's funny how the enemy comes and plays in our minds. He gets these thoughts and perverts and twists the nature of who God is. God so, and we, we talked about that last week, how that word so, it, it, it's, that term right there, is a, it's a word with great volume. It's superfluous, abounding, the, the love of God. We, we just kind of skip over that word so. That, that, there's some, a lot of meaning to that word so. That it's the great love of God. For God so loved the world. The world. Now listen, not everybody is going to be saved. Everyone who rejects Christ is, is unfortunately going off into an eternity lost and separated from God. But that does not negate the fact that God loved them and died for them. That he sent his son to die a, a death in their place. That's the love of God, the heart of God for humanity. Listen, there's nothing keeping you from God but your own surrender. It's our yielding, it's not our performance. You don't have to get it right. You do not have to wear a suit to church. I usually don't, if it's your first time. Probably three or four times a year. It's not because you can sit in the pew right. It's not because you put the right amount of money in the offering plate. It's not because you didn't cuss for three days. It's not because of your performance that gets you in. 
It's falling on the mercy of God. It's giving up our rebellion against him and throwing our hands up and saying, I surrender. I give up. I'm tired of doing it my way. I want you. It's just that simple. He'll take care of the rest. It's that simple. That's, that's the truth of the gospel. I want to talk for just a second as we wrap this up about the love of God. I love this quote. Is my, like I said, I believe that the Bible shines a whole lot of light on commentaries, but I do still use commentaries. And this is my favorite all-time quote out of a commentary. It's from C.H. Dodds. And here's what it says. It says, God is love means more than just God loves or that God is loving. It means that his predominant attribute is love and all of his activity is loving activity. If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. All that he does is an extension of his preeminent attributes of love. Love that. Somebody asked me, who is God? I'll give you this verse. James 1.17 says that every good and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness or shadow of turning. That's who God is. He's the father of lights who gives good and perfect gifts. There is no variableness in him and there is no shadow of turning. He's not shifty. He's not saying, I want to save you. I want to heal you. I want to bless you. I, want, I have a plan and a purpose for you. He's not saying these things on, on the one hand and then the next day, uh, I take it back. Ooh, you did what? I'm going to zap you. That's the way we perceive God. David didn't perceive God that way. David knew he deserved to be zapped in the morning, and he said, his mercy is new. Am I lying? That's not the way he perceived God. He understood the love of God. How great is the love of God. Romans 5 and 8 says this, that God demonstrates his, his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yep. When you were stealing, he died for you. Sexual immorality, when you were in the midst of it, he knew all that, he died for you. Your abusive people, he saw it, and he died for you. Your manipulation, he saw it, and he still died for you. Your lying, he saw it, and he died for you. Right? If you read this in context, scarcely for a righteous man will one die. But in this is the love of God demonstrated. Love is demonstrated, isn't it? God has demonstrated his love in us towards us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for our sins. This is the love of God. It's crazy stuff. I mean, let, let, let's, try to, let's try to bring this in, into a right perspective. 
Okay, let's, let's do it this way. I want you to think of somebody who's offended you. I mean, really offended you. They said what to you? They accused you of what? They manipulated you? They stole from you? What did they do to you? Everybody got somebody in mind? Are you ready to die for them? That's what our, our sin, we have to recognize, it's sin against God. We're in rebellion against him, and what does he do for us? He dies. Puts a whole new spin on what Jesus meant when he said, how do you treat your, your enemy? Pray for him. Bless them. Right? Bless those who despitefully use you. Bless those who have wronged you. Right? This is what Jesus did for us. I mean, we were in all-out rebellion against him. All of humanity. Every man. And he died on the cross for us. This is the gospel. Go, go home and read the book of Revelation, but also read 1 John, the epistle of 1 John. I'm going to read a passage here out of 1 John. Beloved, let us love one another. Let us love, let us love one another, for, for love is of God, and everyone who is born of God and knows, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And this, the love of God, was manifest towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love, but that he loved us and has sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How good are we at loving folks? In a book of apocalyptic writing, the book of the end, all of these things that are going to transpire, we're going to, we're going to look at them, the, the bowls of wrath, the seals, all of these things, Satan being cast down from heaven, we're going to look at all of it. As he's introducing us to what's about to be revealed to us in this, this book, he makes sure that we know that God loves us. I stumbled on that. Actually, 20 years. It's been 20, it's been 2001, 22 years ago. Studying the book of Revelation. I was a senior in my Bible college courses, taking the book, the uh, class of Daniel and Revelation, reading the commentary by Joseph Seiss, and he had in bold, he loved us. When we understand that God loves us, I think it's essential 
We can read this book without fear. Let's stop saying I'm afraid to look into it. Let's stop saying I don't understand it. I don't read it just because it's scary. Let's not say it anymore. Because we know that God loves us. And we know that he's working out his eternal purpose. Amen? Blessed is he who reads and hears and keeps what is written in this book. It's a blessing. Because we have a God who loves us. And perfect love casts out all fear. Get excited because we're about to learn a whole lot about Jesus and what's to come in the days ahead. How many of you are excited about that? Let's stand together. I've got one more verse to read you out of uh, 1 John 4, 19. See, this is a way a preacher can get five more minutes. Nobody really even notices it unless you mention it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. We always get that backwards. And it affects the way that we live our lives. We love him because he first loved us. God wasn't waiting for you to love him before he started loving you. I'm glad that God's love is not objective, it is subjective. God's love is not based on my performance. It's based on his character. Last week we looked at the four different words, Greek words for love. Eros, phileo, storge, and agape. Eros love, it's where we get our idea of eroticism. The word erotic comes from that. It's like the love of things. It's a love of pleasure. We talked about how that's all take. That kind of love is all take. I love it, I'm going to take it. It can be greed, lust. Then we talked about Philadelphia, which is brotherly love, and Storge, which is familial love. That type of love is give and take. My wife and I are in a love relationship, it's give and take. I love my kids, it's give and take. You love me, I love you, it's give and take. We're family, we're friends, there's give and take. There's transactions, right? I mow your yard, you pick my kids up from school. We do that because we love each other. It's transactional, give and take. Agape is the only pure love that is all give. Story, uh, I'm sorry, eros is never, I said, mentioned this last week, but it's never mentioned in scripture, eros. The erotic, greedy, I love it, I want it kind of love. 
Philadelphia, Storge, the family love, the friend love, that's in the Bible. It's attributed to man. Agape, when it's in Scripture, it's always. I take that back. It's most commonly attributed to God, and when it is attributed to man, the implication is that it emanates from God and flows through us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he gave. That's agape. He first loved us before we loved him. Perfect love was coming to us. It's perfect love. And it's not based on us. It's not based on our performance. If God's love was objective, he'd love us as long as we loved him. But it's not. It's not based on who we are. It's based on who he is. If I had time, I'd preach a whole new sermon on all of the attributes of God's love. It's amazing. It's amazing. I want to pray over us as a church. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that as we get into the season of studying your word in the book of Revelation, that it would be what it says at the beginning, an unveiling. That the things that have been hidden to us because of fear, because of misconception, because of the things that have been crammed upon us by religion and church and society, that we would be able to put all that aside, that your Holy Spirit would come and guide us, reveal to us things about Christ, reveal things to us about the coming of your kingdom, the age to come. Father, I pray that you would give us a hope. I believe there are difficult days ahead. This book talks about perseverance. And there are things ahead that we're going to have to endure. Father, I pray that you would give us a hope in Christ that would anchor us. Just blow. Let the wind of your spirit come and blow all the hype away. Because that hype disorients us. It unsettles us. It confuses us. But the hope that we have in Jesus, it anchors us. It gives us our moorings. We won't be easily moved. Because we know of the blessed promise and hope that we have in you. Father, strengthen us. Strengthen your church, your people, every saint of God. I thank you for it and I give you praise for it. In Jesus' name. I, I feel I want, I want to make an altar call for those of you who don't know Christ. Most of the time when we take an altar call out of Revelation, we threaten people with nuclear bombs and the mark of the beast and Babylon and all these ugly things that are coming. And if you don't repent, 
you're going to endure all these things. Guess what? We might all end up enduring them. I don't know. Maybe we are raptured out of here before the trouble starts. See, my hope is not in escapism. My hope is in a God who will never leave me or forsake me. And if I go in a rapture before tribulation or in the midst of tribulation or after the tribulation, I know Jesus is with me and I don't have to fear. I don't want you to come to God because you're scared to death. I want you to come to God today because you know Jesus loves you. For there is a God in heaven who's not mad at you. He's mad about you. And all he wants is a relationship with you. Period. Full stop. You don't have to worry about any of the details. He'll take care of it. If you're far from God right now and you want to come close, I'm going to ask my wife to sing a song, maybe something we can all sing together. And as we're singing, if you want a relationship with the God who created you, and maybe none of that makes sense yet, you don't understand what that looks like or how that works, that's okay. We're going to point you to the Bible and introduce you to Jesus, and you're going to grow in a walk with him. And it's going to be all right. So as we sing, if you want that, I want you to come down to this altar.